Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that made an impact on you as a young boy growing up in New England? Was it a bicycling brand? Was it a technology brand or something else? I would probably say uh, it was a bicycle brand, um, Schwinn. Um, I, I, I can remember always wanting my Schwinn bike. Like that was sort of the key thing for me. So that was probably one that probably brought, uh, was really key at the beginning. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Brian Rowley, Vice President of Marketing, Panasonic System Solutions Company of North America. What do you think of when I say Panasonic? Probably some old consumer electronic. Well, Panasonic may be one of the most misunderstood companies in the world. It's an 8 trillion yen company. That's about $72 billion in sales. And the majority of its business is in leading edge business to business technologies. When you drive a car, go to a theme park or a sports event, sit in an airplane, you are likely experiencing a Panasonic product. Brian has been at Panasonic for about five years, two and a half as VP of Marketing. Before that, Brian spent seven years at Verizon Wireless. He has spent his entire career in telecom after graduating from Northeastern University. Brian is himself an occasional podcaster. He launched a Panasonic-sponsored podcast called The Big Rethink. We'll get into that and more with this native New Englander. This is my conversation with Brian Rowley. Brian, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I had a Panasonic stereo in high school, and that was likely my first touch point with the brand. But wow, is this company way more than turntables for teens. So I want you to start our podcast by telling us how you describe Panasonic today to your friends, family, students. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, it's interesting. That is not an unfamiliar introduction. Um, when I have a conversation in regards to Panasonic, it, it starts with either the turntable, a radio, a razor, or a TV. That's one of one of those sort of categories is what we have. And the interesting part about it is the company has really evolved so much. I mean, Panasonic is, uh, we are a little over 100 years old now. We celebrated our 100th anniversary a couple of years back. And it's interesting just how innovative the company is and and the areas and touch points that we have when you look at it from all the different aspects. I'll speak specifically for the areas that that I have responsibility for. You know, we have an entire line of laptops, tablets, handhelds. We have projectors and video visual uh, equipment for immersive experiences. Uh, We have enterprise software and solutions and services that help efficiencies with 
and then the manufacturing space. Uh, we have food lockers that talk about the quick service restaurant. We have large scale. I mean, so it's interesting just how vast um, the portfolio of products are and just how large of an organization Panasonic is. Brian, you have one of the more interesting VP of marketing job titles, and that is Vice President of Marketing Panasonic System Solutions Company of North America. So could you tell us what that is and describe your job a bit to us? Sure. So um, Panasonic System Solutions Company of North America, it's abbreviated as PSSNA, um, is actually um, consists of five different sort of business units under that umbrella. So we have our mobility sector, which is responsible for our Toughbook brand of products. We have our professional imaging and visual systems business, which think immersive uh, entertainment, education, house of worship, those types of things, broadcast, studio, that type. Um, we have our Epic segment of the business, which is our enterprise process innovation center. Then we have our process automation, which is large factory equipment making components. And then our digital solution center as our DSC. So I have marketing responsibility across all of those organizations um, from digital, vertical, and then go-to-market. Um, so any new products that we introduce to the market um, also carry on through the, the marketing organization. So you're right. It's a big breath uh, in terms of, of what it includes, but there's a lot of different pieces to the, to the overall picture. Now, I have to give you full disclosure. I have been to your headquarters in the US, and I've actually been to your headquarters in Japan. And the, one, the oh, wow. visit to Japan was in 2019, so before COVID. And I got very intrigued by the company. I bought a book about your founder, Kanosuke Matsushita, and how it began with light sockets and bike lamps. And it's just an incredible story of persistence, resilience, courage, boldness. So I was uh, really impressed with the company, and I had no idea how diverse and how interesting and how B2B the company is, which we will talk about. But I'd like you to riff sure. a little bit on, I know the company is 103 years old, very humble beginnings. What is it about this culture? What is it about this company that has enabled it to continue to evolve and change and reinvent itself? That is not easy, as you know. So what is, what is special? I know you've only been there five of the 103 years. What could others learn from about this culture and how it evolves? You know, I think the one thing that really separates us, and I'm sure you probably hear this a lot of times, but I really think the focus on customer and the importance of the customer's voice is really critical to the success that we have experienced over the course of the last 103 years. But continually as we evolve the organization as well. I mean, there are products that we have that we can actually point to certain features or functions associated with that product and tell you exactly who the customer was that actually um, is responsible for that being either where it is, the color that it is, the location, the size of it. I mean, it's that involved in terms of it. So I really do think um, there's a, a tremendous amount of focus um, and feedback that we garner from that customer um, that really is what has allowed us to really expand and stay uh, in, in the key areas that we're in today. You've been at the company about five years, two and a half as VP of marketing, seven years before that at Verizon Wireless. What compelled you to move to this company? Verizon is a pretty good company too, quintessential American 
technology company. You've gone to a quintessential Japanese-based technology company. What was it about the company that compelled you to, sh- to move? You know, it's interesting. I wanted to do a little bit more um, with a company, um, more fo- you know, an international type brand, right? At the time when I was at uh, at Verizon, um, very U.S. focused. I was on the product um, marketing side, um, and I really actually enjoy the culture. Uh, it's a very respectful culture in terms of the way in which we internally um, operate, as well as the way that we have those conversations that I mentioned with customers. So that really intrigued me as well as, you know, as I dug a little bit deeper, I also found out all the different places where Panasonic was. I'm not going to lie to you. I was very much victim of the razor radio TV, right? Mentality. And then when you start to look at and and really get an understanding of all the places that that we do have product and and offerings to customers and industries, uh, it was quite fascinating to have that breadth of, of a product portfolio um, and a company that's, to your point, that's been able to extend itself for 103 years. Some, they're doing something right. And I was, I, was, I was really fascinated by getting to understand a little bit more what that was. Take us back to five years ago. What was the adjustment like moving from Verizon Wireless to Panasonic? I mean, what were the biggest changes? How did your startup go? You know, tell us a bit of the, that story. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think the culture itself is is a lot more respectful uh, to one another than sometimes what we see in uh, U.S. business culture, right? I think that's there. Um, but, you know, there's also some challenges too, right? When I was with Verizon, we were very focused on how do we get into market, get in there quickly um, and adjust. And, and I will say that, you know, we're not quite as as fast to market as perhaps um, one would like. I mean, we're we're conservative to somewhat in nature. Um, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed was, you know, we pride ourselves on the product, but we don't jump out in front of people and say, look at me, look how great I am. So it, it's very much a subdue in the background. We know we've got strength in the product that we produce and the offerings that we have to, to, our, to our customers, but we're not out there, you know, throwing that at you. So, so there's a, sort of that balance there. So, you know, I, I, I think there's good and bad. I don't think that anyone is, is better than the other, but I do think there's just differences in terms of what you're looking for in the time of your career. And at the time I was open to a new challenge and, and this company really was one that I thought and, and agree today, you know, has really been able to, uh, to meet what I was looking for. Before we jump into your role, one more question about uh, the ja- working in a Japanese-based company. I've been at many Japanese companies over the course of my career and they have a funny vision of marketing or a funny understanding of marketing. In fact, I'm not even sure there is a word for marketing in the Japanese language. And I have found many of the companies to be very skeptical of it, not really understand its value, with a strong belief that if we make a fabulous product and we're very, very customer-centric, we will be fine and we will win and we will grow. So why do we need this thing called marketing as a function or a discipline? So I'd like you to speak a little bit to that because you come in as a senior marketing person at a company that is Japanese based that I think um, you know, doesn't quite have the same understanding of marketing that maybe a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever or a uh, Yum Brands would. So 
give us your impression of that and how have you navigated through that? Well, I will say it's a work in progress. Um, we continue through that, right? So, um, you know, I, I think uh, when I started with the organization, a big part of it was marketing consisted of trade shows, being able to take the product, put it on the show floor, and for people to be as wowed with the product as we are. And the reality of that is, you know, that's not, that's not the, you know, there's for every product that we have, there's at least one or two others that have a similar product, right. That are sitting there. So I think getting us past the speeds and feeds conversations as being marketing's real role to really understanding conversations that are happening in the market and how do we participate in those conversations? How do we leverage um, someone who is 100 years old and provide a level of thought leadership into the market have all been significant shifts in what we have done from marketing within the organization. So, you know, it's, it is a work in progress because I still every day have the conversations around the value behind marketing and what that really means versus the perception of what it is. Um, and really showing the effectiveness, having the tools to measure that, making sure that we're focused on our user experience, making sure that we're talking about what the output of our product is versus the product itself and what can that do and how do you humanize that product and what does that do? And, and I mean, there's some areas of the business that that's easier to do, um, but it is, it is definitely um, part of the evolution of who we are. I'm fortunate. I work with a CMO in our headquarters office who is fantastic. She gets marketing. Um, she really understands what that's all about. Um, and so together we've done um, a lot of work, um, sort of evolving sort of perceptions and mindsets that have been there for, for all these years. Yeah, in many ways, I think it's a marketer's dream, right? I, I love working with Japanese companies because, hey, the focus on the customer, the respect for each other, yes. uh, the respect for the organization and consensus. And I realize there's a speed downsize, downside of that. But and the and the and the focus on making outstanding products and and to be always improving, God, that's God, that's what you want as a marketer. You want to be able to create right. awareness and demand and affinity for products that come out of a culture like that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and and, and to your point, it's sort of a blank slate, right? You walk in and you know there's a lot of opportunity, digital marketing, and all the aspects of what we're doing, podcasting, right? I mean, when I said that we wanted to stand up our own podcast, you know, everybody looked at me as like, for what? Like, why do we need that, right? But, but I mean, you know, it, it's done really well, um, and you know, it's just been a different way for us to be able to, to touch an audience that wants to have a conversation with us and do it in a different way. I want to get to the podcast a little bit later when we're going to talk about your job and content, sure. but I want to start. Uh, with your remit as a VP of marketing, or one of your remits, as I understand it, is to work on changing this perception of Panasonic. And we talked already twice mm -hmm. in this podcast about how it's seen as as razors and you know home appliances, that sort of thing. It's very, very, very different. So many of us in our careers, I certainly have, have been charged with changing the perception of a brand or a category. Uh, one in my background was Old Spice at P&G, which was seen as grandfather's brand, you know, and how do you make that a brand that a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old wants to buy? And that was all about perception. And 
So I want you to talk a little bit about what you are learning about changing the perception of this 103-year-old company and how do you go about it? What is your strategy? Where do you start? Uh, how do you bring people along with you? How do you know you're making progress? So you're dealing with a challenge so many of us have are dealing with or have dealt with or will deal with, and yours is one of the biggest. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, I don't want to simplify it too much, but let me, let me, let me take it down to its basics, right? So uh, we sort of operate under three sort of guiding principles, right? We need to be agile. Um, so no matter what we're doing, we need to be able to, to adjust based on feedback that we're, we, we're hearing. We need to be relevant because there's so many conversations that are happening in so many of the different spaces that we're in that just having a conversation for the sake of speaking is not going to do it. And, and quite honestly, we've done that. We've done that in the past. Check the box to be able to say that, yes, we have a press release that went out in regards to this product launch versus really um, being relevant and, and meeting the pain points that our customers have right around what that value is to the product that we just launched and being fearless, trying new things, right? So, so agile, relevant, fearless are sort of the three found the grounding points for our marketing team to really push us to that next point, to be able to really get out the message that we need to, but also be being willing and smart enough to have the measurements in place to be able to say, okay, that worked or didn't work and be able to step back and adjust that based on that feedback. And that feedback comes to us, as you know, in a variety of different ways. Um, but you know, that ability is to be able to really say, okay, I know when it's time to jump into the conversation and I know when it's time to jump out. And I think, you know, it's interesting because you know, when I was getting ready for this, um, I did some some creepiness online about you and was doing sort of the the reading about you. And I love, you know, your your front page of your website, right? Sort of really struck it for me. And that was, you know, you you say business is seeking to thrive today require an authentic reason to be. I mean, that like there's that piece to it. In all of those three pieces that I meant, you know, being authentic, which in my mind also translates to sort of a humanistic side to marketing, right, is really what it takes. You can be everything else, but if you're missing that authenticity, um, people see right through that. And, and today's world, not only do they see through it, they call you out on it. And you have to be prepared to, to deal with that. Brian, of those three, you talked about agile and relevant and fearless which has been the toughest one to build into the culture and to make it part of your daily work? Yeah, I think fearless is probably uh, the one that's probably been the most challenging because, you know, we, we, we did a nice job of being able to look at what's working, what's not, right? That was sort of a piece to it. Relevance is really a defining point as to how do you define relevance as to whether people, but, but getting past the definition side to it, the mindset was already there. The fearless side of really going at markets a different way and trying tactics that might not have been tried or trialed in the past, that probably has been the one that's been the most challenging, getting people on board to, to just be willing to, to just try something that's completely outside of their comfort zone. I'll tell you, you know, when the pandemic hit, 
we were a company that did hundreds of trade shows in the course of a year. Switching that to virtual environments and building virtual platforms and doing all that um, really pushed the comfort zones of many of the people within the organization. And you saw how quickly, you know, as you know, when it comes to change, people either adapt it or they resist it, right? There's, there's very few that are sort of in between that. Um, so I, I think the fearlessness piece to it has really been the challenging part. But at the same time, as we talked earlier, just in regards to the marketer, um, that's the part that's actually most exciting. How do you role model that? I mean, this is an issue in many companies, right? To help people feel more empowered, emboldened, try different things, uh, go a different way. Uh, it's hard and it's hard in a culture sometimes where a mistake sets your career back. I grew up in a culture at PNG where we, we tried to preach fearlessness, but the reality was someone made a big slip. There were other people who wanted their job, and it, you know it was it, it made for too much internal competitiveness versus competing for the outside. That's gotten better over the years, but it was certainly there when I joined the company. So, how do you role model that as a leader, as VP of marketing? How do you role model fearlessness? I think it's how you define success. So if success at the end is a metric that says you either had X conversations with people and you limit it to just that, then it's very easy to set yourself up for potentially that failure and that person who is jumping down the back to be the next person to say, I can do it better. But when I think when you look at success as how many times did you try something new throughout the course of the year, whether it was positive uh, from an outcome perspective or negative, and giving individuals the abilities to sort of be somewhat autonomous in the work that they do and allow them the opportunity to quote unquote fail. I hate that term because is it really failure? One would argue that you learn more from things that aren't successful than you do from things that are, right? So, you know, for me, it's all it's always been around how do we actually define that? And, and we try to do that for everything that we go into. What is a success model associated with this? What, what actually are we looking to achieve here? Because it's not always a number. Sometimes it's much, much more than that. How do you know you're making progress on changing the perception of Panasonic? Well, it's interesting um, because I think that's a loaded question, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I still have the conversations all day long about razors and TVs. Um, but I think one of the things that we have seen is we have more conversations and hear more that, oh, I didn't know that you did that. And for me, the more conversations like that that we have, um, I think that is, is a true sign of the evolution. Let's be honest. We've been, we've been doing certain things for so many years that that doesn't change overnight. So to, to put a metrics to say that you know by the end of 2021 or 2022, whatever the time frame is, everybody's going to understand us for, I mean, first of all, the portfolio is so large that that becomes more challenging. Um, but I think you know the other side to it is is um, just really being in a position where you are, you know, that 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 value add right to a market or place that you're you're sitting in. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. 
To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I want you to tell us a bit more about your role, your VP of marketing in this area of Panasonic focused on solutions. Where do you spend your time? What are you personally focused on? If we could look at your calendar for a month, what conclusions would we take away? Yeah, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, other things, quite honestly, that other people are doing, like looking at the new ways to sort of approach things. And and I mean, we all have sort of brands that we admire, um, brands that have sort of really stepped out there and done a nice job. So I spend time looking at, you know, the the positives, the negatives associated with some of that, that fearless approach. Um, I spend a lot of time really um, talking to our internal teams. Um, I, I consider them our customers as well and understand, you know, what resonates with our customers, where, where are the customers really giving us feedback. Um, quite candidly, I wish I could spend more time there because you, you learn so much from those approaches. Um, and then, you know, really trying to approach what we're doing in a way that we're adding value to a conversation. You know, I don't like to have conversations for the sake of just being a voice. I want to be a voice that actually has a meaning and is relevant. Um, And again, going back to that appears authentic um, and and isn't just saying words um, because they're the right words to say, um, but are, are really having good conversations and actually solving some of the challenges that we know exist based on feedback from customers. Sounds like you spent a fair amount of time on external activities. What are some of those brands or companies that you do admire that give you inspiration for what you're doing and where you're trying to take Panasonic? Yeah, I mean, there's the obvious, right? Like, I I think, you know, you look at companies like Apple as an example, right? I mean, from a customer experience perspective, it doesn't really get much better than that, right? I mean, it really, they, they do such a great job in that space. Amazon, another one, fantastic company, right? Just in terms of what they're doing. I, I have always admired the Nike brand because I think probably from an authenticity perspective, I think they're probably one of the most authentic brands that exist um, just in their abilities to be um, very vocal about things that are important to them um, and willing to do it um, regardless of sort of what potentially could be some of the consequences associated with that. Now, not everybody can do that, right? Because in in a lot of cases, it it comes off as not being authentic when people do things like that. Um, You know, I'll give you an example. I mean, Panasonic is a very conservative company. So if we tried to do anything like the likes of what Nike did, it just wouldn't work for us, right? So it's, it's really understanding what works and why it's working um, and not trying to sort of follow um, if the ground and stage and foundation of the company isn't there to be in line with what's made uh, the success for those other organizations. So I think those are a couple of others. I mean, I love brands like you know, the Ritz Carlton, I think that brand does a really nice job of making the customer feel like they're the most important person in the building at the time. Um, but then, you know, you look at other things um, that are in market, you know, other companies, um, you know, Tesla, I mean, talk about a company that's done a fantastic job of just sort of 
moving into a market that was a very mature market and just turning it upside down. And that a lot of that is, you know, just um, some of their indirect marketing, I think that they've done, because let's be honest, you don't turn on your TV and see a whole lot of Tesla brands, but everybody knows who they are and what they do and what they stand for. So that type of those type of brands always, always intrigue me the most. What do you love about your job, Brian? Um, I love the flexibility and creativity and the abilities to be creative and try new things. Um, I'm in nature. I'm a creative person. Um, I, I like to look at things through a lens, unlike others look at it. I always, you know, I have conversations with my team all the time and I, I always try to, I understand that there's so much going on inside my head all the time that I'm like, all right, well, let me slow down here and try to get that out for you because it's just constant. I'm one of those people that sleeps with a pad of paper next to the bed because I wake up and there's yeah. some thought that I know will be gone, you know, tomorrow. Um, but I do, I really love uh, the creative sides to it. And I love the opportunity to be sort of a, a part of the history of what does the next hundred years look like for this brand and how do we evolve it to make sure that it remains relevant to the market that we're serving at this particular time? Anything drive you nuts about the job? Oh yeah. There's all sorts of craziness that drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the thing that drives me the most crazy, and I think this is not uncommon with a lot of people in marketing roles is, is I always get concerned about people who aren't willing to throw themselves out there and try something new. Um, and, you know, there, the reality is, is, you know, certain times require us to do that more so than others. We're in a very challenging time right now, not necessarily just Panasonic, but everybody. When you look at the types of things that we have with, you know, um, supply chain challenges that exist in the world today, um, markets being saturated, um, number of competitors that are entering markets. How do you differentiate yourself, new audiences that you're trying to target, um, a shift from, you know, your current demographic to future demographics? There's, there's a lot of different places there. And so I think the part that challenges me and, and the part that sort of is somewhat more frustrating and lack of patience on my side is those that aren't willing to to, to progress and move forward. Because I, I, I think in order for, as an individual, take the business side out of it. I think as an individual, if you run your life with blinders on, uh, especially in today's world, um, I think you'll get you know uh, pushed out of the way faster than you can imagine. I, I was talking late last week to a senior marketer in the pharmaceutical area, and she was talking mm -hmm. about how tired her organization is, how burned out it is, uh, and how we're dealing with things we've never dealt with before, with COVID and all the mm -hmm. other things that you just laid out. So any thoughts from you about how to keep your team, your culture fearless and engaged and excited? and interested and trusting in these really, really difficult times. We're all trying to figure out how we work in the future, hybrid, in the office, not in the office. Yeah. So what do you, and any thoughts, any learning, any tips from yourself in keeping your culture highly engaged? Well, I'll tell you, I think 
allowing the culture to have a voice um, and giving them the abilities to be able to vocalize that is really important. Um, so people need to feel like they're being heard. And so, you know, one of the big things that we focus on internally is sort of this high performance culture notion. And that's really made up of individuals within the organization who we have done just that for. We've created sort of key areas and elements that are important um, and allowed them to have a a voice um, and and for us to you know there's a lot of buzzwords that are out there right but um, you know from a diversity of thought perspective right I think it's critical uh, to give people the opportunity to to be able to share their voice no matter what their opinion is um, but just being able to vocalize that. The other thing for me that I'm very passionate about, because um, I struggled with this uh, specifically at my time within Verizon, and that is sort of work-life balance. And you hear it a lot. You hear a lot of people who talk about work-life balance, but the reality of that is not a whole lot of people execute against that. Um, it is just words. Um, and so for me, I, I really do focus on that myself as well as for the team um, to make sure that you know nobody knows them anything better about you than yourself. So you know when you've reached your tipping point. And I'm a firm believer that you have to step away um, when those signs make themselves obvious and, and do what's right for you. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we continue to have work, work continues to pile up. It's not going to go away. Um, but, you know, in the way in which you approach it definitely is changed um, if you can achieve that sort of balance in your life and within work. And that becomes even more and more challenging in the environments that you just mentioned, where you have, you know, people on the team who are, you know, during the day they're working or whatever, during an eight hour period, they're being, you know, someone on a marketing team. And in the meantime, they're also doing potentially homeschooling or, you know, they're doing all the other things to manage households or, or families. So uh, the balance piece to it is really critical. I Think. What are you most proud of in your two and a half years as VP of marketing? I would say I'm first of all, I will I will start that by saying I'm incredibly proud of the team that I have working with me. Um, I've got some just incredibly talented individuals within the business. Um, I think the thing for me that's most uh, that we're most proud of is the way that we have changed the conversation. You know, as I mentioned, um, we are a, at the end of the day, we, we are a hardware company that, that is what we've been able to do, but to be able to really dig in and, and talk and, and help customers as they're trying to get past some of the pain points they have. And for us to evolve our story beyond just the significance of the hardware in that, but truly in the actual experience or the situation that we're creating, whether that be someone being more efficient, um, whether that being something where we are creating a more immersive environment for someone, um, whether it's around downtimes and, and keeping companies up and, and functioning um, in a more efficient way. Um, I think the way that we've been able to change that dialogue um, through marketing, I think has been really um, a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment of the team. This is always a tricky question, but you're a big B2B company, right? So you see a lot of companies, yeah. which customer of yours, and I know there are many, but which customer of yours has impressed you in terms of how they see the 
the organization, the market, their brand, their solutions for customers? Which one have you worked with where you said, wow, there's something really, really special going on there? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those examples. Um, I can tell you, though, recently, um, there's um, a company, uh, it's, a, it's a food service um, establishment by the name of Brooklyn Dumplings. The owner of, of the organization is a gentleman by the name of Stratus Morphigan, and he actually, uh, very well known in New York City, uh, has multiple businesses, multiple restaurants that he's had, but he sort of brought back the whole automat concept. And during a tremendously difficult time um, that we've seen over the past year, specifically in the restaurant industry, he was able to open up a restaurant that is just is so incredibly um, successful. It's just it's, it's mind boggling. And, and really, he did it by taking the balance of really quality product, adding technology into the mix. So he utilizes uh, his website for all of his ordering. We have ambient food lockers that are in there where you pick up your food. So you actually do it at the pace. You know, it's ready. We tell you when it's ready. You go there, you scan a, a code the locker opens, you grab your food and out you go. So, I mean, just that type of thought process on how to change the way that we're so used to doing work um, really is one that sticks out for me. I mean, there's also a a ton of others, you know, I mean, Disney, we work very closely with, um, we work with the likes of FedEx. Um, so, I mean, there's some great things that are happening there. I mean, there's just so many companies that we have that are, um, that we work with. I mean, there's some police departments um, that are just doing some incredible things from a community service perspective to the way in the life of an officer and what that looks like and how we evolve that and how we, you know, help protect that organism, you know, those individuals that are out there doing incredibly difficult jobs. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on because there's just so many great examples that exist. But I think most importantly, it's people who are willing to sort of be um, that are open to the guidance, um, of having good conversations, um, and being open to things that they never thought of as potential solutions, um, to overcome sort of a challenge or a pain point that they're experiencing or their industry is experiencing. You've had a good two and a half years as VP of marketing, seeing all these really interesting companies, anything not go as well as you would have liked. Yeah, I mean, there's always challenges, right? Like, I mean, I I think there's always things that that we can do and continue to do better. Um, I would say, you know, probably some of the shift in some of our tactics um, uh, and how we approach the market probably aren't happening as fast as I'd like to see them. Um, we still tend to rely on the the areas that we we think we know and we're comfortable with. So, you know, I don't know that I would say that it it didn't go well. I, I think it's more a matter of, is it going as fast as I'd like to see some of the evolution that I would like to see and some of the advancement that I'd like to see? Um, that's probably more appropriate for my response than necessarily saying that it, it didn't go well. You've used the word conversations several times in this podcast so far, and I know you're a big believer in conversations leading to innovation, and that's a pillar of modern marketing. 
You pioneered a Panasonic podcast called The Big Rethink, mm -hmm. and it's in the background of your picture right now. Our viewers cannot, or our listeners cannot see that. You also do a podcast for your internal culture, which I find really interesting. So I'd like you to walk us back and talk about why you do these two, The Big Rethink and Culture Shock is your internal podcast. What's the strategy behind it? Has it been effective? Why has it been effective if it has been, and where is it all going? Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, we all know the statistics around podcasts, right? Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, yeah, you're booming. doing it, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it's just it's it's amazing in terms of a reach and a touch point. The thing that I love about podcasting so much, whether it's internal or external, is it really allows the end user the flexibility to consume at the rate at which they're comfortable with. So rather than feeling the need to be at a certain point at a certain place in time, um, it really allows them to consume whenever it works for them. And I think the area and window of opportunity for that consumption is also greatly expanded. You know, I, I, I had a conversation probably a week ago um, and it went something along the lines of, you know, well, why podcasts? And and I said, well, we were very much focused on white papers uh, and things like that. And, and I can tell you, I'm, I'm a biker. I like to ride my bike. And so um, that's when I listened to my podcast. And so I couldn't read a white paper while I'm riding my bike, um, but I can listen. If you're in the car or you're commuting, um, you know, it isn't always easy to read printed material, but audio is, is definitely a, a, a way to go about that. And we felt the same way internally, you know, we do sort of the whole death by PowerPoint nonstop or continual email. So what we tried to do was figure out what are ways that we can make that content available, but still allow the employee the opportunity to, to listen to it whenever uh, they felt appropriate. And then, you know, with that, the name of that podcast is actually Culture Shock. Um, and we started that with um, a, a session called Remote Control. And um, we did it right when the pandemic hit because we thought that there were certain skills that we needed to be able to communicate to the employees that were sort of those power skills that we thought were going to be necessary in order for us to maintain a remote work environment. And so simple things as much as, you know, how do you have a good video call? What should you be aware of? All those types of things that what are the you know tips and tricks, so to speak. And then it's just evolved beyond that. Um, I work with a gentleman by the name of John Palumbo. Um, he, he, uh, he, he does a lot of this um, and he is fantastic about just getting you to think about the unfamiliar way to go about things um, and, you know, cross pollinate really, right? What are things that are value that you have um, that are relevant enough that you can tie it back to a position or a job or a function that you have internally, but not may not be the exact same, you know, function that you're looking at. So it just really, again, stems from that whole concept of diversity of thought, pulling in different ways to be able to pull that. But yeah, the big rethink um, has been incredibly successful. Um, and it, it, it has because I think 
we didn't target it as an ad for Panasonic. We focused it on what is the value that we can bring to a conversation. So it's, it is conversational, as you mentioned, um, but it was intended not to be an advertisement. It was really meant to be a, a thought leadership type perspective. I listened to a few of them. Great range of topics. Thank you. Hugely interesting for anyone. You do those about every other week. We do. And Culture Shock, how often do you do that? The internal one. So Culture Shock, every other week as well. So we drop a new episode every other week. Yeah, that's quite a commitment. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of Culture Shock, the internal one, because that's, you know, it's pretty unusual. I haven't heard anyone else doing that. If you had advice for other senior marketers, if they wanted to embark on the same sort of thing, what would that one piece of advice be? Yeah, I would think not to underestimate the degree and level of work associated with it. Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just stand up a podcast and, and off we go. But there's a tremendous amount of preparation um, in order for it to be successful. I, I would highly recommend getting um, you know, in touch with the right people. Um, as I mentioned, you know, and this isn't an advertisement for him, but John is a great guy. He works for a company called Big Head Networks, and he has been fantastic um, about helping us sort of navigate those waters around things that work and don't work. I mean, things as much as, you know, just the ability for people to be able to provide comments, right, in regards to, so you have a good understanding of whether the content is resonating or what other content people need. There's a lot of different, you know, of those sort of tips and tricks as well. I love the acronym you use for people these days, or I guess customers, uh, and it is BETA. And I've, I've seen you use that in, in another piece of content. And I'd like you to walk our listeners through that, what that acronym means and how that plays out for you and your team. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's sort of this, this sort of new demographic, right, of, of individuals that we're focusing on. It's a, it's a subset of sort of the millennial audience, right? And so it, it, it is... It's more focused on sort of the, um, the this approach that we take in regards to how we attack um, and things that we need to be aware of um, in regards to the audience that we're we're talking about. And so um, the interesting side to it is the betas that are out there. I mean, they make up such a large segment of the um, of the audience that it, it's sort of critical. And and you know, it's all about sort of being again authentic. You know how in a technology sort of sort of plays into this, um, all of those different factors and the importance behind that, and not to underestimate that. Right, like this is a powerful audience. When you look at what this audience is capable of doing, we've all seen examples where these audiences are quite honestly capable of bringing a company to its knees if they don't operate in the ways that they need to. So it's really, it's really a fascinating um, subset of that millennial audience um, and their influence in the market is just in incredible. We can definitely share um, more on some of the things that we've done in the past in regards and some of the conversations we've had about them for sure. If there's a way for us to post that when you drop this, we're happy to share some of that. Super. And the acronym beta, I mean, the, the A in it stands for activist. That's a part yep. of the mindset of this yes. uh, cohort. How do you think about that at Panasonic? Uh, you know, I get a question about once a day about where, where should I stand up and take a point of view with all the things going on in culture, society, and business. How do you make that decision about where Panasonic 
has a voice and has a point of view? Well, I think it's a it's a it's a really um, tricky spot, right, to play into, and and I think there's there is a level of responsibility that I think businesses have, right, in, in some of that. Um, but I also think that it it has to again it, it all ties back to that authentic piece, right? I don't think that you can make or take a position on something so that you become news or noteworthy. I think you have to do it because it's really in the core beliefs. You mentioned our founder at the beginning of this, right? And, you know, there's a reason why we have um, sort of this, a better life, a better world uh, piece to it. Contribution to society at all levels is actually one of the big founding principles of who we are as an organization. Um, however, that said, contribution can happen in a multitude of ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have the biggest voice in the market um, at any given time, but it's really about the actions of what you do. And, and you know, it's no different than, you know, um, establishing credibility, you know, someone, and, you know, and we've all heard this term, right? But it's it's the things that you do when people aren't looking, versus the things that you do when they are that are really the most important and most significant. So I think you know that is from the activist side to it, I think you know a big part of it is really for us doing what's right and what's what we've been charged with and what our founder established and we've been doing for so many years um, is is really the piece to it. And then, it, it you know, there's also a feeling of it that you've got to step with your gut and you've got to you've got to be able to feel good about, you know, what you're talking about and, and, and your contribution to either correct it or even just maybe give some things a bigger voice if that's that's what's needed. On the um, the the big rethink, we're we're doing something. Um, uh, I'm doing an episode coming up here, um, and it's about the whole logging um, industry and it's sort of the, the the challenges for the rainforests and, and and the environment and things that are happening there. And there's this great guy who actually has founded this uh, this approach, and, and it'll be an upcoming episode. But one of the things that he said was. You know, sometimes just showing up is enough to change behavior. And so if you think about that, it isn't always having to stand out. It's really just being willing to show up. And I think if we're all willing to just show up a little bit more, I think you'll see that that in itself is significant to, to making some, some, some key changes. That's a good segue, Brian, into our last segment of this podcast, the Creator Brief. Yes. And I want to start with this question. You graduated from Northeastern University a few years ago, and you had a degree in marketing, and you went into telecommunications and never left. Yeah. So was that intentional? Did you think when you were an undergraduate, I want to be in this emerging area of telecom? Or was it more opportunistic? It was probably more opportunistic. Um, but I have to say, I'm a little bit of a tech geek at heart. So uh, technology has been something that's always fascinated me. So being able to pull the two together is one that really is, um, it keeps me going. That, that's the, the side of it that I really love. I love being able to learn about new things, the way that things are changing lives and, and how technology you know, approaches that. It's interesting, my parents, you know, 79 and 80, and, you know, 
we talk about technology all the time because sometimes initially they were like, oh, I'm not so sure about this. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Technology is the key to your independence as you get older. What you're capable of doing by understanding that is just amazing. And so for me, I just love that. I just love the concept of, of technology, which is sort of what led me in that direction. And I've actually worked with some great companies over the years um, that have just blown my mind and some of the things that they've thought of. Some successful, some not, but the fact that they even thought that to begin with, just they were so far ahead of their time. Who's been the most inspiring person in your life? Um, you know, that's a tough one. Um, I, I would say probably it would go back to uh, my grandfather. Um, he was somebody who really um, was, uh, he was a pediatrician um, and he was one who spent a lot of time um, out and in front of his patients at the time when doctors made house calls, but really extended upon me sort of the importance of um, of education and 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 getting myself educated. So I think he was difficult. Um, he he was challenging at times, um, but he was he was incredibly smart um, and and really probably instilled some some key skills uh, in that process. Who has been the most significant business mentor in your life? Wow. Now you're getting me. These these are the challenging ones. Um, I mean, there's there's a couple of individuals. Um, While I was at Verizon, um, I worked with um, a woman by the name of Rose Kirk. She actually heads up the foundation at Verizon today. Um, And I think she's probably been uh the most influential um i always admired her um she was a leader in a very challenging business at an early on um but she was also someone who didn't accept no as an answer um but also was someone who uh was very balanced and very methodical and every step that she took. Um, I always loved the way she politically played the game and um, didn't necessarily look at her as someone who had an agenda in that process, um, but was, uh, was, was gave some really great advice um, over the course of many years. And, and today I still consider her a, a friend. What are you reading today, watching, listening to that is making an impact on you, either just fun or educational or something else? Well, uh, as I mentioned, um, I love automobiles. Uh, so I do a lot of the, of the blogs and, 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 and all of those types of things. Um, I tend to watch a lot of reviews. Uh, I'm fascinated by the EV world. Um, I think it's a tremendous shift in sort of what we see as the future of the automobile, even not just from the technology of the vehicle, but what does that mean from a rideshare perspective and different things like that? So that's a big, that's a big one for me. Uh, in terms of watching, um, gosh, um, there was a great series um, on Netflix called Nine Perfect Strangers mm, yeah. uh, that was just starting. On. Yeah, fantastic. And one episode fantastic. in. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's short, but it's it's really really good. So uh, I like to be entertained, though. I, I don't like to, you know, like I don't get into a lot of the political type stuff. I, there's too much going on in the world. So for me, I, I I do like to be entertained, whatever you know that that medium looks like. So, hey, last question: What are you most looking forward to in 2022? 
being able to have um, more face-to-face discussions, Um, getting back in front of people, having those, the ability to do that. I mean, we're all getting there slowly, but surely. Um, But I think, you know, uh, there's, there's a miss uh, in terms of being able to have one-on-one conversations uh, face-to-face and just maybe grabbing a drink or dinner with someone um, has become a little more challenging than it is. My sister was just here for the weekend. She's, uh, I haven't seen her for little over a year now. Um, so, you know, it was nice to see her. So, uh, I think that's probably the biggest piece that I'm looking forward to. Brian, thank you for this wide ranging and wonderful discussion. Uh, I've had a blast. I appreciate it. Good luck in all you do. I think you work for a terrific and a really interesting company. So well done. And I'll look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Great, great time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Brian Rowley. Three takeaways from this one for your business and life. The first one, lessons on how to change the perception of a brand, organization, institution. Brian took us through how he's thinking about it and he's changing this company in a big way. First one is it takes time. You have to be patient. This company thinks in long blocks of time. It's 103 years old and is thinking about the next 100 years. So this is a marathon, not a sprint. Be patient. You can change a perception, but it doesn't happen overnight. Second lesson, how do you know if your organization is fearless? Everyone wants an organization that is bold, courageous, and fearless. What Brian does is he asks people in the performance reviews every year how many times a year that person has tried something new. That's a good idea. Third lesson, Be creative in how you engage your internal organization on what matters for the company and what matters to you. Brian launched an internal podcast called Culture Shock to convey information and ideas and insights to his organization in a way that they want to experience and listen to. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.